This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. As a way of introduction, I want to tell you that free speech and academic freedom are quite related, but they're not the same. And academic freedom is about freedom of inquiry, the right of professors to research and teach about subjects that they find interesting and compelling without consideration of commercial, professional, or um, administrative interference. And it hasn't always been such. Uh, The University of California itself has a somewhat sordid role in history, in enforcing loyalty oaths and in aiding the anti-communist crusade in the years post-World War II. My wife reminded me that when she was a student at Cal, she had to sign a loyalty oath in order to take her job as a part-time summer parking lot attendant. (laughs) She had to pledge allegiance to the state of California. Now, absurdities aside, those things were quite real. In the late 1940s, as the Cold War gripped American political life, universities banned left-wing student groups and communist speakers. Professors who had been members of the Communist Party or had been attracted to popular front groups during the 1930s and 40s were deemed unfit to teach. By being communists, went the reasoning, they could not speak or think independently, thus they could not be objective scholars. And they certainly could not be entrusted with the education of the nation's impressionable minds. Pressure on public universities by politically motivated state legislatures was particularly strong, and several public universities fired tenure faculty, not simply because they might have once been communists, but because they took the Fifth Amendment and refused to name names in university-conducted interrogations. Professor Chemerinsky will be addressing some of those, these topics tonight. Suffice it to say, he has a long list of important publications and action activities in the university and beyond. He's a well-known scholar of constitutional law and civil procedure. After an illustrious career as scholar and teacher, in 2008, he was named the founding dean of the School of Law at the University of California, Irvine, not without controversy, which he may want to talk about tonight. Um, In 2017, he was appointed dean of the School of Law at UC Berkeley. And by the way, he graduated from Northwestern University with a bachelor's degree in communications. (laughs) Welcome, Dean Chemerinsky. Thank you so much for that very kind introduction. It's truly my honor and great pleasure to be here with you this evening. I've always thought that every generation feels that it's the first one to discover sex. (laughs) Likewise, I think that every generation thinks it's the first to discover issues of free speech on college campuses. The reality is there's been controversies about expression in universities as long as there's been colleges and universities. Yet I also believe that things are different today than they've been before. Some of that, as I'll talk about, is because of the internet. Some of that is because the context with regard to speech has changed. 
The mental image that many people have with regard to free speech on campus is what occurred in Berkeley in the mid-1960s, what's known as the free speech movement. It involved students protesting on campus to gain the right to engage in expression on campus unrelated to university activities. College administrators tried to stop them. Now so often when it comes to speech on campus, it's outsiders. Ben Shapiro, Milo Yiannopoulos, Ann Coulter, wanting to use the campus as a platform. It's often outside groups that want to stop them, like what happened at Berkeley last year when Antifa caused a great deal of damage through acts of vandalism on campus. Other things have changed, too. I think student attitudes with regard to speech have shifted. It used to be that students were almost a monolith in being supportive of free speech. Now there's great disagreement among students and faculty. A survey by the Pew Research Institute found that 40% of undergraduates surveyed believe that campuses should restrict offensive and hateful speech. The last two years before this one, I taught an undergraduate class at University of California, Irvine, on free speech on campus. I did this together with the chancellor there, Howard Gilman. And we were surprised both years, class after class, how many of our students favored much greater restrictions on speech. I strongly disagree with those who criticize these students, who call them coddled or snowflakes. I think their impulse is laudable. It's the desire to create an inclusive community for all students. This is the first generation to grow up being taught that bullying is wrong, and they've internalized the message. At the same time, I think that something has changed in this country over the last year. I often have the sense that a rock has been overturned. You all know about the, what occurred in Charlottesville at the end of the summer, but I don't know if you read the signs that were held up there. I remember seeing one sign, and I quote to you verbatim, and it said, quote, kikes belong in the oven. I'm 64 years old, but I don't remember ever seeing a sign like that held up in public. We had an incident at Berkeley Law School in September where Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz came to speak. He's conservative, he's a supporter of Donald Trump, he strongly supports the current government's policies in Israel. It was tense, but it went off without incident. Later in the afternoon where he spoke, someone drew a swastika over his picture. There's an post on a law school bulletin board. I've been a law professor for 38 years now. I don't remember ever being in a campus building where someone drew a swastika on the wall. There's much that we could talk about tonight with regard to free speech on campus, I thought what I might do that could be most useful is discuss with you what is the current law with regard to free speech on campus, including what are some of the areas where the law is uncertain. Increasingly, as I participated in discussions about this, I realized how crucial it is to separate a discussion of what the law is from what the law should be. I want to address the former. But as an illustration of my sense of the need to draw this distinction. In September of this year, before the anticipated free speech week on the Berkeley campus, the Chancellor Carol Christ convened a faculty panel. 
It was an auditorium this size or larger. Every seat was taken. People were sitting in the floor in front, up and down the aisles. And one of the faculty members on the panel said that white supremacy is the largest issue in our society, and the campus should simply refuse to allow hateful speakers. It doesn't matter what the law says. And there was resounding applause from the audience. In the question and answer period, a student very eloquently said that when there's hateful speakers on campus, she feels harassed and unwelcome. She said the chancellor should exclude speakers like Milo Yiannopoulos, no matter what the law provides. There was resounding applause. I was a faculty member on the panel. Near the end of the discussion, I felt the need to speak up as a lawyer, as a First Amendment scholar. I said, be clear. If Chancellor Christ were to keep Miley Yiannopoulos and speakers like that from appearing on campus, she would get sued and she would lose. When Auburn University tried to exclude Richard Spencer from coming, he and his supporters sued and they won. If the Chancellor were to exclude speakers like Milo Yiannopoulos, they would win and they would collect attorney's fees from the Chancellor and the campus. She might be personally liable for money damages because she's violating clearly established law. The excluded speakers would present themselves as martyrs and victims. They would get to speak anyway, so nothing would be gained. No one applauded when I said that. (laughs) And yet that is the reality of the law. And let me try and explain it to you. And let me describe the current law in three points. First, All ideas and views can be expressed on a college campus. Period. Now, I'm obviously tonight speaking of public colleges and universities. This, after all, is a public university. But it's also important to remember that the First Amendment to the Constitution applies only to the government. Private entities, whether they're private universities or private corporations, don't have to comply with the First Amendment of the Constitution. This is one of the most basic principles of constitutional law, but I've also found it's one of the most misunderstood. You might remember this past fall when President Trump said that football teams should fire football players who didn't stand for the national anthem. A reporter from a major newspaper called me and said, wouldn't it violate the First Amendment if a football team fired a football player for not rising for the national anthem? And I said, Professional football teams are private entities. The First Amendment doesn't apply to them. And the reporter responded by saying, Professor, are you sure about that? (laughs) Or my favorite illustration of this basic principle of constitutional law involves a conversation I had 26 years ago with my older two children when they were nine and six. We were in a grocery store together. Diet Coke was giving away free baseball cards. Three cards were pictured on the outside of the package. As we went up and down the aisles of the grocery store, my two sons were fighting, as they often did at that age, but who was going to get the extra baseball card? Finally, I said, be quiet. I don't want to hear anything else about baseball cards to leave the grocery store. My then nine-year-old turned to me and said, you can't tell me to be quiet. I've got freedom of speech. (laughs) I was ready for him. I said, freedom of speech means the Government can't tell you to be quiet. I'm not the government, so I can. To which he, without missing a beat, turned to me and said, well, you're like the government to me, so you shouldn't be able to tell me to be quiet. (laughs) 
Nonetheless, I believe that private colleges and universities should also follow the same principles with regard to freedom of speech. This does go to the issue of academic freedom. In order for universities to be places for advancement of knowledge, there has to be academic freedom. The First Amendment and protection of freedom of speech are entirely complementary with that. The alternative to freedom of speech is for some governing entity, those who rule in a private university, those who govern a public university, to decide what ideas are acceptable and what should be prohibited. That's the antithesis of academic freedom. And for a public university, it's the antithesis of freedom of speech. The Supreme Court has said that the very core of freedom of speech is that the government never can restrict expression based on the viewpoint. Even if the viewpoint is very offensive, it's still protected by the Constitution and protected by academic freedom. With regard to the First Amendment, I can illustrate by a case earlier this decade, a case called Snyder versus Phelps. It involves a small church of Topeka, Kansas, the Westboro Baptist Church. The members of the church make it a practice of going to funerals of those who died in military service and using them as the occasion for expressing a very vile, anti-gay, anti-lesbian message. Matthew Snyder was a Marine who died in military service in Iraq. The members of the Westboro Baptist Church traveled from Kansas to Maryland where Matthew Snyder's funeral was going to be held. Before the funeral, Fred and Margie Phelps, who lead the Westboro Baptist Church, asked where they could stand during the funeral service. The officer pointed an area about 1,000 feet from the service was going to occur. Before the funeral, they chanted and sang. During the funeral, they held up signs. That night, Albert Snyder, Matthew's father, was watching the news. He was able to read the signs. He was deeply offended. He sued the members of the Westboro Baptist Church for intentional infliction of emotional distress and an invasion of privacy. A jury awarded him $10 million. The United States Supreme Court, 8 to 1, ruled in favor of the members of the Westboro Baptist Church. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote for the court. He said, the government never can create liability for speech. It can never punish speech on the grounds that it's offensive, even if it's deeply offensive. Under the First Amendment, and especially because of academic freedom, all ideas and views can be expressed on a college campus. Second principle, freedom of speech is not absolute. There are categories of unprotected speech. Long ago, the late Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, there's no right to falsely shout fire in a crowded theater. At least since 1942, the Supreme Court has said it's going to identify some categories of speech that are outside of the Constitution's protection. Example, child pornography is speech that's unprotected. The government can punish it. False and deceptive advertising is unprotected. There are three categories of unprotected speech that are relevant to our discussion of campuses, colleges, and universities. The first is incitement of illegal activity. 
The Supreme Court has long said that speech that incites illegal activity is not protected by the First Amendment. But here, as is true of all the categories I'm talking about, it's important to separate the legal definition from the colloquial use of the word. The legal test for incitement comes from a Supreme Court case in 1969, Brandenburg v. Ohio. There, the Supreme Court held that the government can prohibit advocacy if there's a substantial likelihood of imminent illegal activity and if the speech is directed at causing imminent illegal activity. Let me contrast two examples in terms of what would be or wouldn't be incitement that could be punished. Imagine there's an angry crowd on this campus. And imagine that a speaker exhorts them to go commit acts of vandalism, to break windows, light buildings on fire. And then the speaker gets punished for incitement. I don't think that would violate the First Amendment. It would meet the test that I described to you from Brandenburg versus Ohio. Imagine a very different situation. Imagine a controversial speaker comes onto campus, Milo Yiannopoulos. And imagine that an angry group reacts against Yiannopoulos, committing acts of violence. Yiannopoulos can't be punished for that. He wasn't advocating that they commit acts of violence. It wasn't speech was directed to inciting it, and it wouldn't meet the legal test. And there is a more general First Amendment principle that we don't let the reaction of the audience be the basis for suppressing the speaker. If the audience is misbehaving, we should punish the audience. We shouldn't silence the speaker. A second category of unprotected speech is called true threats. This phrase, true threats, actually comes directly from the Supreme Court. It comes from a case in the mid-1960s, United States versus Watts. It involves a federal statute that makes it a federal crime to threaten the President of the United States. The Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of that law. The court said, though, it's important to separate hyperbole, which we protected by the First Amendment, from a true threat. The Supreme Court hasn't done much to clarify what true threat means. I think the best understanding is that the true threat it would cause a reasonable person to imminently fear for his or her physical safety. I'll give you an example. Imagine that there's a student walking across campus. And imagine that an angry group surrounds that student. And imagine they say things to that student that causes that student to fear for imminent harm to his or her physical safety. I don't think that the students who are doing the yelling would be protected by the First Amendment. Even if no blows were struck, that's a true threat. There's a third category of unprotected speech that's relevant to our discussion tonight, and that's harassment. When speech rises to the level of harassment, it's no longer protected by the First Amendment. What's interesting is there's not much law yet in terms of when does speech on a college campus become harassment. There's a good deal of law, though, in terms of when is speech in the workplace harassment that's not protected by the First Amendment. The most obvious example is if an employer says to an employee 
sleep with me or you're fired. The employer doesn't have a defense by saying, well, it was just speech. It's clear the employer can be sued and held liable. Likewise, the Supreme Court has said that speech in the workplace that creates a hostile or intimidating environment can be punished, can be held liable. The court has developed a test here, and some courts are starting to apply it to the campus. It's harassment generally if it's directed at a particular person. Or it has to be so pervasive as to materially interfere with employment opportunities on the basis of race, sex, religion, sexual orientation. Generally, to be harassment, it's going to have to be focused at a particular person. Let me give you a couple of examples. I know there was an incident here where someone put in the library what appeared to be a noose. There's an incident at Duke University where someone draped over a tree what appeared to be a noose. That's a vile symbol of hate, but it couldn't be regarded as harassment if it's put in the library, if it's put over a tree branch. Imagine, by contrast, if somebody tacked what appeared to be a noose on a door in a dormitory of a room of an African-American student. I have no doubt that's harassment and that speech that can be punished by the First Amendment. Certainly, there's a need for the law to give us more guidance of where we should draw the line between speech that's protected and speech that's harassment. But we know that at some point, when it's harassment, it's not protected by the First Amendment. So I've covered for you the three most important categories as to unprotected speech, incitement, true threats, and harassment. You'll notice what I did not list is a category of unprotected speech. That's hate speech. Hate speech generally is protected by the First Amendment. In the fall, I had so many reporters call me and say, what's the line between free speech and hate speech. And that's a false dichotomy. Hate speech is protected as free speech under the First Amendment of the Constitution. You might remember hearing about incident in the Chicago suburb of Skokie in the late 1970s and early 1980s when the Nazi party wanted to hold demonstrations there. Skokie at the time was a predominantly Jewish suburb a significant population of Holocaust survivors. Every court, including the Supreme Court, ruled that the Nazi party had the right to march in Skokie, even though their message was hateful, even though it would be very upsetting and deeply offensive to the residents of Skokie. Every United States Supreme Court case to deal with hate speech has found that it's safeguarded by the First Amendment. There's a case in 1992 RAV versus City of St. Paul. St. Paul, Minnesota adopted an ordinance prohibited burning a cross or painting a swastika in a manner likely to anger, alarm, or cause resentment. These are vile symbols of hate. The Supreme Court ruled nine to nothing that this is speech that's protected by the First Amendment. There's another case, Virginia versus Black in 2003, that involved a Virginia law prohibiting cross-burning. Eight to one, the Supreme Court held that there's a right to burn a cross unless it amounts to the level of a true threat. In the early 1990s, over 350 colleges and universities across the country 
adopted so-called hate speech codes. Everyone to be considered by a court was declared unconstitutional. Why is this? After all, hate speech can cause enormous harms to people. We protect free speech as a fundamental right because it has effects. If free speech had no impact, we wouldn't safeguard it. Those effects can be tremendously positive. Speech can enlighten and uplift us. When it's hate speech, it can hurt us deeply. I think part of the reason why hate speech has been found to be protected by the First Amendment is that no one's yet found a way of defining what's hate speech that's not unduly vague and overbroad. Any law, any rule, including on campus, regulating speech, has to be clear about what's prohibited and what's allowed. And yet, the hate speech codes on campuses or the hate speech laws in Europe all are so vague and overbroad. Let me give you an example. There were a series of ugly racist incidents at the University of Michigan, and it adopted a hate speech code. It prohibited speech that would stigmatize or demean on the basis of race, sex, religion, or sexual orientation. But what does it mean to stigmatize or demean? A sociobiology graduate student brought a challenge and said that his research was about whether there are inherent differences between men and women with regard to behavior. He said he was afraid that his research could be deemed to stigmatize or demean. I think some of the reason why the hate speech codes declared unconstitutional was the experience under them. In every jurisdiction, it seems, the hate speech laws are most often used against the very groups that we desire to protect. Before the University of Michigan hate speech code was invalidated, every enforcement action under it was brought against African-American and Latino students. If you look at how the hate speech laws in Europe have been used, you see exactly the same pattern. When England first adopted its hate speech law, the initial prosecution under it was against the Zionist group. The prosecutor said that he believed that Zionism was a form of racism and therefore he could punish those who advocated Zionism under the hate speech law. But maybe most of all the Supreme Court has said that hate speech is protected by the First Amendment because of what I said earlier. All ideas and views are protected by the First Amendment. Long ago in Cohn versus California, Justice Harlan said, to censor words is to censor ideas. We can't cleanse the English language to please the most squeamish among us. Well, this brings me to my third principle, and that's that campuses can use time, place, and manner restrictions so long as they leave adequate alternative places for communication. Even when there's a right to speak, that doesn't mean that it can be exercised at any time, in any place, in any manner. The Supreme Court long has said that public streets are available for speech, but there's no right to have a demonstration down the middle of the 405 freeway during rush hour. I think that campuses can use time, place, and manner restrictions to prevent disruption of campus activities and to protect safety on campus. Campuses have as their primary missions the teaching of students and research. 
And so they can restrict where and when speech occurs to prevent disruption of these activities. A campus, consistent with the First Amendment and academic freedom, could say, no demonstrations in or near classroom buildings when classes are in session. Campuses can have free speech zones, so long as they leave adequate places for speech. Likewise, I think that campuses can have time, place, and manner restrictions to protect safety. Campuses have the legal as well as the moral duty to protect the safety of students, staff, and faculty. Using time, place, and manner restrictions is one way to accomplish this. Last summer, the chancellor at UC Berkeley, Carol Chris, asked for my advice on how to deal with the most controversial speakers. And I said, have those speakers be in an auditorium, like where we are now, not in the middle of campus. If it's an auditorium, the campus could require tickets. If necessary, there could be metal detectors. There could be police to secure the perimeters. If it's in the middle of campus, that's just not possible. And that's a permissible time, place, and manner restriction. One of the hardest issues for which there is no clear answer is how much does a campus have to spend in order to ensure that a speaker can be there while also protecting safety? You might have seen that UC Berkeley spent $3.9 million this past fall to allow controversial speakers like Ben Shapiro in Milo Yiannopoulos to come onto campus. That's $3.9 million that could have been used for the education of the students. Fortunately, to this point, there's no legal answer to that question. We know that campuses can't impose such great charges as to keep speakers from being able to appear. A campus, say Berkeley, couldn't say to the college Republicans, you can have Ben Shapiro come, but only if you pay the $600,000 in security. The government can't charge for a constitutional right in a way that would keep it from being exercised. Also, we know from the Supreme Court that government officials can't have unlimited discretion in setting the amount of the fee. There's too great a risk of viewpoint discrimination. But beyond this, the question is, where is the point at which the campus can say, we can't afford to protect safety, so we're not going to allow the speaker? When Chancellor Christ asked me this question fall, I explained that we don't know the law at this point. The courts haven't set any law. I said that if I were your lawyer, and I'm not campus counsel, she's got campus counsel, I would say to you, you have to spend a reasonable amount, but I couldn't tell you what that would be. And I'd say you have to answer two questions. One is, what's your stomach for litigation? If you exclude a speaker, because you don't want to pay the security costs, you will get sued. The law is sufficiently uncertain. There's no way to know if you'll win or lose. If you lose, at the very least, you have to pay the other side's attorney's fees. And I said, the second question is, what message do you want to convey at this time? And I think Chancellor Chris quite rightly said she wanted her message to be that Berkeley is a free speech campus and spent the $4 million to allow the controversial speakers. But what if it wasn't free speech week? What if it was going to be free speech semester? What if the cost wasn't $4 million, but $20 million? Where is that line to be drawn? We don't know. I think the other set of hard issues that are sure to come up concerns the Internet. 
Our mental image with regard to speech, as I said in my introduction, is students on campus engaging in protest activity. But now so much speech occurs over the internet. It's not on campus in any physical sense. What happens when the internet is used to reveal very private information about people? So-called doxing. What happens when the internet is used to harass? And we know that it's disproportionately done to women and to minority students. Under what circumstances then can the campus be punishing speech? I think that the internet is the most powerful medium for communication to be developed since the printing press. It's tremendously democratized the ability to reach a mass audience. It used to be in order to reach a mass audience, you had to be rich enough to own a newspaper or get a broadcast license. Now, any of you with a cell phone, or even just access to a modem in a library can reach a mass audience. And it can be used for great good, but it also can be used for great harm. And here, too, the law has not begun to keep up. So I've tried to communicate to you, as best I can, the key principles that exist with regard to free speech on campus. But I want to emphasize that I think that there's so much that campuses can and should do to create an inclusive community for all students without restricting speech. I believe that the campus's duty to be inclusive for all students is important as the duty for speech. I believe it can be accomplished without restricting speech. Just as Oliver Wendell Holmes said, that the best remedy for the speech we don't like is more speech. I'm not naive. I know that more speech can't cure the pain and the harms of speech, but it can make a difference. When there's hateful incidents on campus, campus officials have the duty to speak up. I learned of the swastika over Alan Dershowitz's picture at 3 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. At 8 o'clock on Thursday morning, I sent a note to all faculty, staff, and students condemning it and explaining why it's inconsistent with the community that we aspire to be. I think that principles of community are enormously important. It's not that they're enforced by punishment, but they say what kind of a place we desire. It's always important to remember that just because there's a First Amendment right to speak doesn't mean that the speech should be uttered. I think campuses can and should do more to encourage students to engage in counter-speech. When the white supremacist Richard Spencer spoke at Texas A&M University, a counter-demonstration was organized in a large football stadium. Tens of thousands of students and faculty came. I've talked to many who were there, and they told me of how unifying it was for the community to come together and repudiate Spencer's white supremacist message. I've seen students engage in teach-ins in response to the speech they found offensive. Students engaging in picketing or leafleting without disrupting the speaker. All of these are important ways of dealing with the speech we don't like. I realize that my answers to this may not be completely satisfying to you, I can't pretend that I'm completely satisfied by the answer. But in the end, I'm so distrustful of giving to government and campus officials the power to say these are the messages we like and these are the messages that we want to stop. 
I'm so aware that the only way that our speech can be secure tomorrow is to protect the speech we don't like today. We'll always let the speech that we like go forward. We really need the protection of free speech for the speech we detest. Thank you. Many of the colleges on this campus have principles of community that are quite visible. They're on websites. They're, um, they're displayed in the college administration buildings. And those principles of community are to guarantee a kind of civility um, and respect for one another. And I've noticed that when the university is confronted with hateful speakers and is obliged to protect them, students often feel like, wait, what happened to the principles of community that you touted so heavily? And they feel that they've been betrayed by the administration or by faculty that support the speakers. Can you address that? Sure. It's very important to distinguish principles of community that are aspirational from regulations that are enforced. Principles of community on the Berkeley campus, and I'm sure here, announce what we aspire to be. It's not meant to be disciplinary. Now, I think the hope is that it will shape the kind of discourse that occurs and doesn't occur, but it's not enforced by any punishment or other sanctions. That's quite different than a campus speech code where somebody violates it, they can be punished. And I strongly favor principles of community. I think it's consistent with our educational mission, We're helping teach students about how they should talk to one another and not talk to one another. But I oppose campus speech codes for the reasons that I said. Um, another related issue, and that is about hate speech, which is one of those topics that um, resonates on campuses. And there's an argument out there that um, even though the Supreme Court and our constitutional doctrine advocates that the remedy for evil speech is more speech, there's an argument about hate speech that you alluded to that because it causes injury, particularly in minority people, that um, the rising to the occasion of offering counter speech is kind of short-circuited by the injury. And there's an argument about, out there that says that when there is hate speech uttered towards someone, that um, they don't engage in that kind of civic republicanism of rising to the occasion for counter speech, but in fact, they're fearful um, and feel silenced. So the the, the issue around counter-speech is short-circuited. I'm sure in some instances that's true. And yet the question is, what conclusion do you draw from that? Thus far, the Supreme Court has always said that for the reasons I explained, hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. I think some of that is, as I said, because of the inability to define what we mean by hate speech, that wouldn't be impermissibly vague and overbroad. Some of it, I think, is the experience with hate speech laws. But some of it, I think, is the reluctance to allow the government to say any idea, even a hateful and hurtful one,
can be prohibited by the government and that people could be punished for it. I don't want to minimize the harms of hate speech that you and others have described. And yet, I don't see any likelihood that the current court or any future court is going to say that hate speech can be protected, prohibited, and punished by the government. Um, there's a, I'm starting to read questions now. Do the laws also apply to high schools and lower? I assume that's about academic freedom. Sure. The law treats high schools different from colleges and universities. There is a Supreme Court case in 1969, Tinker v. Des Moines Board of Education, and involved John and Mary Beth Tinker wearing armbands to protest the Vietnam War, and the school officials telling them not to, that there were students in the school who had brothers who were serving in Vietnam or died in Vietnam, and they did it anyway, and they got punished. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of John and Mary Beth Tinker. Just Abe Fortas wrote for the court and eloquently said, students don't leave their free speech rights at the schoolhouse gates. However, in the 50 years since, the Supreme Court cases have all sided with the schools and against the students. Uh, the lower courts have tended to decide it with the schools and against the students. And they've generally said that schools have much more latitude with regard to punishing student speech in high schools or middle school or lower schools than college universities. Also, whereas academic freedom is thought to be a central part of the mission of a college university, it's never been defined that way with regard to high schools. So should we as a tolerant society allow any forms of intolerance? Um, the philosopher Karl Popper says that as paradoxical as it may seem, defending tolerance requires to not tolerate the intolerant. Do you agree with the paradox of tolerance? I think tolerance means we have to be tolerant of even those who advocate intolerance. Now, I'd be interested to know how do you define what's tolerance versus intolerance other than what you like and what you don't like and each of us, if we had the power, could certainly think of speech that we want to prohibit. But isn't that the whole point of why we don't want the government to have that power? The assumption of the First Amendment is that we're better off letting people advocate even intolerance, and if it responded to, than letting the government side, these messages are so behind the pallet we won't allow them. So I think that Popper is wrong there. I think that the courts have gotten it right, but... Nothing else I can tell you, whether you agree or disagree, that's what the law is, and we disagree with Popper. Uh, why was candidate Trump allowed to incite violence against protesters at his campaign rallies? I think the question is whether it would meet the legal test for incitement. The Brandenburg test that I quoted to you is a very hard standard to meet. You have to show a substantial likelihood of imminent illegal activity and that the speech was directed intending to cause imminent illegal activity. And we need to talk about, as to particular rallies, whether what Trump did met that standard. Um, here's another. Studies indicate that the number of staff, faculty, who identify as conservative is between 1 and 5%. Do you believe that this lack of diversity leads to a political correctness culture? If so, does that culture bear some responsibility for these situations discussed tonight? 
Let me try to break that question down. First, I believe that colleges and universities should be ideologically diverse as well as diverse in every way. I would hope that we would always have conservative and liberal and every other ideology, faculties and students. And I believe that college universities should be places where all ideas, conservative, liberal, and every other philosophy, should be able to be expressed. I'm not exactly sure what's meant by political correctness because it's a phrase that's thrown around so loosely. Um, when I've said that I think that college universities need to educate students about what speech might be hurtful, this is in the context of, say, talking about so-called microaggressions. And I said that I think it's very important that students be educated for what they say and how it might cause pain to others. And people say, well, you're just advocating political correctness. And my response is, no. We all learn from a young age there's things you should and shouldn't say to others. And if it's going to be hurtful, you shouldn't say it. And we should educate students about that. I don't think that's advocating political correctness. Um, if political correctness is about social pressure not to say things that's hurtful, then I'm in favor of political correctness. I'm in favor of pressuring people not to say things that are hurtful to others. If, however, political correctness chills the discussion of ideas, then I think that's a bad idea, because all ideas should be expressed in the context of campus and universities. What is the appropriate and legal response to hecklers who shout down and disrupt a speaker? I feel strongly there is no First Amendment right to use speech to silence others. You might remember there was an incident at the University of California, Irvine, several years ago, where the Israeli ambassador, Michael Oren, was coming to speak. And as he began, students stood up in that corner of the room and began shouting so Ambassador Oren couldn't be heard. That student was escorted out. Another student then began shouting. That student was escorted out. Every time Ambassador Oren began to speak, a student shouted so he couldn't be heard. Altogether, there were 11 students who shouted so Ambassador Oren wasn't able to continue, though ultimately he did deliver his remarks. I wrote an op-ed in the LA Times the week this happened, saying that the students who shouted down Ambassador Oren we're not engaging in speech protected by the First Amendment. There's no right to use speech to silence an invited speaker. There was an incident at the University of Oregon this fall where the president, Michael Schill, was giving a state of the campus address, and students chanted and sang so he couldn't be heard. There was an incident at William & Mary College around the same time where a speaker from the ACLU was going to speak, and students chanted and sang so she couldn't be heard. I don't think the First Amendment protects the right to do that. Otherwise, the only speech we'd have is that which people don't care enough to silence. That if you don't like a speaker, you can certainly protest. Hold a sign silently. Leaflet outside. Hold your own demonstration. But there isn't a right to engage in a hackler's veto. Um, you sort of covered this, but given that the question asks, so let me read this. Uh, where do we draw the line between harassment and harmful speech? I think under current law, that's a very difficult question to answer because the current law doesn't provide us very much guidance. Um, I think it's going to always be difficult in terms of line drawing. I think that generally harassment requires that the speech be directed at a particular person. 
or it has to be so pervasive as to interfere with educational opportunities. Um, at the risk of waging into a controversy on this campus, I've been asked today, what about when people chalked build the wall, especially in front of a building that I guess was for a Latino organization? Um, isn't that harassment? Isn't that directed? And I think under First Amendment law, it's clear that however offensive it might be to some people, build the wall is a political message. And there's the First Amendment right to do it, even to do it in that context. Now, if instead of chalking, the people yelled repeatedly at those students, I could see it crossing the line in terms of harassment. But we have to have this discussion as a society, as individual campuses, and in the courts of where to draw the line between what's speech that's protected and when it becomes harassment. I can tell you the legal standard, but beyond that, we need a lot more guidance in order to come to a conclusion. If a solution to hate speech is more speech, how can campuses move forward to ensure equity of speech? Like on the internet, access to audiences varies with respect to factors such as status and money. How can campuses promote counter speech such that the community is not inundated by the side with more power? The reality is those with more money have lots of advantages, including they can engage in more speech. I mean, that's true in every realm, and it's always been the case. In campuses, though, I assume there's a student activity fee here, and the student activity fee gets dispersed among student groups, and those student groups then can engage in speech. Student groups also, I assume, have the ability here, like on other campuses, to raise money of their own to engage in more speech. But will that eliminate the inequalities of society and wealth, and therefore the inequalities and opportunities of expression? No, but I don't have an answer to that. Um, if we are going to use the Brandenburg test to be the gold standard for free speech regulation, must we accept that a student will have violence inflicted upon him or her for change? I don't think the First Amendment ever protects a right to engage in violence. Uh, put in the context of rallies and demonstrations. There is no First Amendment right, no Second Amendment right, to bring a gun or a weapon to a rally or demonstration. People don't bring guns and weapons to engage in discourse. Once it is about inflicting, threatening, risking violence, then we're not in the realm of speech protected by the First Amendment. But I don't think the Brandenburg test requires that violence be inflicted. I think what the Brandenburg test says is we're going to only punish speech as incitement if it meets this admittedly restrictive standard. Let me do a follow-up. Um, I'm worried about the ability of people to carry weapons protected by the Second Amendment, and they don't have to use them. They don't even have to brandish them. They're carrying them in contexts where there may be speech going on. Does the Second Amendment have dangers for the first? To this point in time, no Supreme Court case has ever found a right to carry weapons outside the home. 
The only thing the Supreme Court has ever found in all of American history is the Second Amendment right to have a gun in one's home for the sake of security. So I think it is completely lawful not just to ban guns at rallies and demonstrations, but to ban guns in public. And I am tremendously critical of states like Texas that are now allowing students to carry concealed weapons on campus. Um, I don't think that that furthers academic inquiry in any way. And what are your thoughts on Germany making it illegal to deny the Holocaust? Obviously a different legal system, still. Again, what concerns me is if you give the government the power to say, you can't deny the Holocaust, you then get to... Did you notice that Poland, just in the last month, has adopted a law that says you're not allowed to say that Poland was responsible for the deaths that occurred there during World War II? And, of course, then the government can say you're not allowed to criticize government officials in this way. I mean, once we say we're going to give the government the power to determine this idea is beyond the pale, um, my own view is I would rather let the Holocaust deniers say their silly message and then explain why it's wrong and look at their evidence and the evidence on the other side. We don't need to suppress the speech to show that Holocaust deniers are wrong. The evidence is so overwhelming. Let the evidence come out and refute them rather than try to gain acceptance by silencing them. If an art piece with a provocative message would potentially start a riot, should the work be taken down or the, taken out of a university gallery? No, stop the riot. Don't stop the speech. Um, in terms of the art piece, if an art piece is so powerful that it might cause a riot, doesn't that then tell you that it's speech that should be there for people to see and react to? Um, I don't believe that there's ever an involuntary reaction where you see the artwork and then without any opportunity for election, you go out and commit acts of violence. Um, stop the violence. Don't stop the, the artwork. Um, we're about to wrap up. Let me give you the last question. Um, are the Russians protected by the First Amendment from, for spreading fake news on the web? I actually think this is an enormously difficult question. Let me put aside the Russians hacking into the computers and then releasing information. That's illegal behavior. And there is a sense in which we all recoil that Russia would try to have an influence in the United States election. Now, I've got to admit, there's a certain hypocrisy at that reaction because the United States has so often tried to interfere with foreign elections through its own speech, including misinformation. But let me put all of that aside. Um, What if foreign speakers decided that they wanted to engage in speech to influence what's going on in this country and this country's elections? Citizens United says explicitly the identity of the speaker doesn't matter. Well, if that's so, why should it matter if it's a foreign or a domestic speaker? Now, there is a federal law that prohibits 
foreign corporations and foreign individuals from contributing money and spending money in United States elections. Um, if the identity of the speaker doesn't matter, is that constitutional? Now, my answer to a lot of this would be, well, just have stricter disclosure laws. Just have it known who the speech is coming from. Um, I'm not taking the strong position that the Russians should have the ability to influence the United States election. I'm just raising the question and saying, well, I think it's difficult under First Amendment law to say, what is wrong with that kind of speech? Um, It illustrates something else that I said in a different context towards the end of my remarks. The Internet has so vastly changed the nature of free speech. It used to be that countries could isolate themselves from the speech of other nations. Now that's impossible because the Internet doesn't respect national boundaries. Forty percent of all the sexually explicit material that we call pornography on the Internet comes from foreign countries. It makes it very difficult to try to restrict sexual material if we want to in this country. When there was a revolution in Egypt, one of the first things that the government tried to do was to close down the Internet in that country. But people had satellite phones where they could access the Internet. What I think we see from the 2016 election is the ability of another nation, through the use of the Internet, try to influence our elections, and to do so through social media like Facebook, through the Internet. And it's not going to stop with that election. It's going to happen again in 2018 and like. And how do we deal with that? How do we respond to that? I don't think, again, here... Our society, let alone our law, has begun to keep up with technology. Let's end. Thank you very much, Dean Kimmel. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.